Tonight's talk is called God's Romance for Singles. The choices you make in your single years are going to go a long way in shaping the type of marriage you have. I do not want you to live for marriage. You need to live for God. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge the reality that the vast majority of you in here will probably get married at some time. And God loves marriage. God created marriage. I want each one of you to develop a love and a passion for marriage, even if you stay single for the rest of your life. Because marriage is God's gift to mankind. And Satan hates marriage. He wants to attack it in any way he can. And whether you marry another human, you are, if you are a Christian, you are married to Christ. So the marriage principles matter. But this is an acronym, R-O-M-A-N-C-E, Romance. Write these down. These are the some tools I want to give you to fight against the lies of Satan. You guys are going out into a battlefield here. A mindset, an enemy, a culture that wants to destroy you, wants to rob you of your purity, wants to sabotage your life, bring you so much pain. Already, so many of you have experienced so much pain from lies that our culture believe about what makes you happy, what is our sex life for? What is the way we can really enjoy life? There's so many lies about that. Does anybody have any questions from this morning about... I, I sprayed you with a lot of information this morning. And if you hadn't thought about this stuff, or if you'd only heard the world's version of this stuff, it would be pretty confusing. Quick review of what I covered this morning. Romance... The infatuation, the feelings of romance are like a super glue. And when you start bonding to another person, for example, when you start seeing yourself as an item, when you start expecting that this person owes you exclusive rights of time and emotion and affection, you've started bonding. Now, it's not that there's anything inherently sinful about bonding. A lot of people, what they want to know, and this is a question a lot of youth group leaders get asked, what's the line? How far can I go physically with my boyfriend? How far can I go with my girlfriend? How much can I get away with and still have God smile at me in my dating life? That's the wrong question. Because as soon as you are asking about a line, your focus is on the line and getting as close to the line as you want, as you can. God calls us to holiness because He is holy. He wants us to reflect His holiness. But also holiness is where ultimately our greatest satisfaction and happiness is found. So our goal is not to see how close to the line of sin can we get. Our goal should be how close to God's standard for me can I, can I get by His power, for His glory, and for my good? That's the question. So when I talk about not holding hands, for example, it's not that I think you are really messed up because you held hands with someone else. That's not the issue. The issue here is 
You should not enter your relationships with other people selfishly motivated. It should be, what, how can I serve the person I'm with? What is best for them? This brings us to the R in the acronym tonight, which is recognize the reality of your future spouse. And for that matter, the future spouse of the person you're with. The reality of your future spouse. If you want to know what's acceptable to do in your non-romantic relationships, apply the golden rule to this. Imagine that you are, you guys, imagine that you are on a date with someone else's wife. And treat that woman in such a way that you could go to their wedding and look her husband in the eye without any guilt and say, you have nothing to fear about the way I treated your now wife when she was with me. That's the kind of protective attitude, guys, you need to have. Girls, the same way. When you are in your relationship with the opposite gender, keep thinking about the person's future husband or future wife, I should say, that you're with and act in a way that he would appreciate. If you're having trouble making this concrete, think about your own parents' relationship and let that be your guide. How do you appreciate your parents interacting with members of the opposite gender? Let that be your guide. Now, I don't just mean to make this a negative thing either. Recognizing the reality of your future spouse is an exciting and satisfying place to direct your desires. Because all of us have our guys, our Beatrice, girls, this dream person that you are hoping to find someday. It's how God made us. God said it's not good for man to be alone. It's not a bad desire. Crushes, these are a normal part of life. No one should feel guilty for feeling attraction to someone of the opposite gender. What you need to do is say, God, thank you for creating me with these desires. Thank you for giving them to me. And I want to acknowledge that because you gave me these desires, you are the one who ultimately knows the way to satisfy these desires. But Heidi told you girls last night with so much wisdom, when you have crushes, turn them into prayers for that person so that that crush is not wasted. So that if you're feeling an attraction to someone, pray that person and pray, pray the scriptures for that person. That way, you're not only spending time, what Satan might mean as a distraction from your single life, you're actually turning into fellowship with God and time in the Word. And it's a, it'll sanctify that desire. But if you just try to stifle it, it's just going gonna, gonna to keep coming back stronger when you're fighting against it. Direct it to God. Some people find it helpful to write love letters to their future spouse. Some people find it weird. It doesn't matter. It's, the idea is that catch a vision for the reality of your future spouse. Because Satan's game plan for you is to not think long term. To not think about the consequences of this. It's all about this moment. If you find yourself alone, guys, with a, a woman, and she's starting coming on to you, Satan is going to completely be shutting off the consequence part of your brain. 
And all you're going to think about is right now. This is Satan's universal temptation strategy. Don't think about tomorrow. Don't think about the consequences. Think about the pleasure right now. It's a strategy we humans are too weak to handle. Because our desires are too strong for us. The only way we can control our desires is if we are desiring God above all else. And that is another letter in the acronym. So, recognize the reality of your future spouse in giving you a vision, but also giving you a very practical guide, measuring stick, guidelines for how you should be treating people you are not married to. O is open up to your parents. This is very hard for young people because often parents make the mistake of teasing their kids about romantic relationships. It was what my dad did from a young age. He teased me and he just thought it was funny and at first I laughed. But when I got to the age of actually having a crush, it wasn't a silly trite thing to me. It was a serious thing. And I didn't want, I couldn't bring it up with my dad because he would just, He'd belittled me in that area before, and I didn't trust him with that. But my mom, on the other hand, when I was honest about my crushes with her, she respected them so much. She listened, she empathized with me, she prayed with me, and that was such a safe place to discuss these. I can't stress enough how important it is, people, that when you are going through things, internal emotional struggles, that you share them with a godly mentor. If it's your parent, that's great, but someone who loves you. Because it's when we keep our thoughts to ourselves that Satan distorts reality so well. Sometimes all we need is a listening ear, just some place where we can expose our thoughts to light. And sometimes just hearing our thoughts out loud, we go, okay, that was, that's really twisted. I just have to say it to realize that's, yeah, I know that's not right. But you need that community, that safe place to share. I just want to let you know that your parents, okay, some of your parents have probably been so broken by life and so hardened that they don't have love to give. But what I'm talking about is a normal parent relationship. I'm the oldest of 11 kids, which has been said a few times. When I got married, some guys say how their honeymoon is such a time of responsibility. They realize, I've got to take care of someone now. My carefree days are over. But I remember the day after we were married and I laid down for a nap and I immediately started doing a safety checklist of my little siblings. And it hit me. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And I felt so light and free on my honeymoon that I didn't have all those responsibilities of little ones, which I loved, by the way. I have no complaints about all my time. I love babies. But when... Some people ask, so did you have kids right away? I say, no, we waited nine months. And when I found out that Heidi was expecting, I was so ashamed of my selfish response that I smiled to her, but I was not excited about it. And I couldn't believe this. I, people had told me all growing up, you're going to make such a great dad, you're going to love having your own kids. And I knew I was going to love having my own kids. But suddenly, 
babies weren't just response, weren't just a fun responsibility. They were eating into my freedom with Heidi to just go anywhere and thinking we can't just drop everything and go camping. We now have to bring a diaper bag and car seat and it just and then the morning sickness hit, which complicated things. But then when we were in that delivery room <laughs> and after eight hours of labor and height and it was Heidi was Okay, some you're saying I won't go into too many details, but anyways, the baby wasn't coming out like it was supposed to. <laughs> and they were trying to find the heart rate, and Heidi wasn't aware of this. She was just in so much pain, and it was getting harder to find the heart rate, and I'm just panicking. The doctor's pager didn't go off, so the nurse, I thought, well, the, the nurse was the only one, and I was really wishing a doctor would be there to, in case an emergency action was needed. But when the baby came out, we noticed, we thought it was Sophia, it turned out to be John Michael. But seeing that little purple baby, you think, it, oh no, it's dead. But when it breathes that first breath of life, your world is completely transformed in that breath of air. The world looks so different. You just, it's this flood of emotion from the anxiety, is this baby gonna live, to just absolutely being flooded with euphoria. And I remember stepping out of the hospital the next day, just on top of the world, I was a dad. I drove so carefully to our grandparents' place where we spent the first night. There was just this unbelievable love for this child. And that, that night, Heidi woke me up at 3 in the morning. It was my turn to take the baby. And I spilled water all over myself trying to get up. And I took this baby downstairs and looked into that little bundle, looking into the eyes. And he's looking at me for the first time. This is my son. Just an incredible love. You'll hear about this, but it's going to catch every one of you by surprise when you actually hold that baby in your arms. It's indescribable. I thought I knew babies. But that love is so strong. And let me tell you, your parents love you so much. And when you say, Mom, Dad, do you have any wisdom about romantic relationships? Would you, could you listen to me talk about my heart without mocking me? I can guarantee you that they're going to be so blessed by that. And they're not going to want to criticize you or give you bad advice. I am quite sure you're, if you have even a semi-decent parent, they want a good spouse for you even more than you want a good spouse for you. And most of them have probably been praying for your future spouse since you were born. You can trust your parents. You can trust the advice. I just plead with you, this is something so practical. Because infatuation is all based on unreality. In the fireplace, it's a gift. But in outside the fireplace, this infatuation, you're going to fall hard for probably the person who is worst for you. Parents are not blinded by that infatuation. And... They are your allies. The M is marriage training grounds. It's your family. There's a dirty little secret about romantic relationships that that person you marry, they become family. 
and the way you've been treating your family, the habits of how you've been treating your family, are how you will eventually end up treating your spouse. It's hard to believe. Remember how I said that first night where I was so in love with Heidi? Not the first night. I don't remember which night. But I was amazed at how what a great man it made me being in love with her. I was selfless. I was considerate. Being in love changed things about how kind I was to her. But there came a day when I wasn't feeling so in love again. And the habits I had developed of how I spoke to my mom, how I treated my sisters, that was what I had fallen into in treating Heidi. This is why one of the best ways you can evaluate the potential in a person is how they interact with their family. I strongly advise you do not get into a serious relationship with someone until you have seen this person in the context of their family. My sister went through a very difficult experience of falling pretty deeply in love with a person. They were very careful to save the physical, but they didn't really get to, she didn't get to see this person in the context of his family. And it turned out his family had some concerns about him. He ended up being a very different person than she thought. Because when a person by himself, anybody can put on a front. But families know the truth about who a person is. It is so important. Remember, marriage is based, a successful marriage is based on relationship skills, not chemistry. This is going to be hard to believe because it's the message of almost every romantic comedy. Most Hollywood's so shallow that the only marriage advice they have to offer is find someone you feel strong chemistry with. And it's the strong chemistry that guarantees your relationship. False, false, false. Chemistry of infatuation does not last. Marriage is based on kindness, a gentle tongue. These are some things I would like you guys to work on with your family, not just so that you're great marriage material, but so that you can love your family the way God wants you to love your family. God wants to love your family through you. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are going back to homes where the love of Christ is not really strong. God wants to love your family through you in the way you treat your family. And as you love people, that is when you, when God's love is flowing through you, that is when you will feel God's love most real. When you are giving, when you're a container of God's love, that's when you will feel most loved by God because it's God's love flowing through you. But the important things, for example, your tongue. You know, how many families are fractured? How many marriages fall apart simply because of a misuse of the tongue? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Some wives just have no problem criticizing their husbands. That hurts deeply. And husbands start withdrawing, looking elsewhere. Some guys have no problem criticizing their wife's body and they wonder why the wife is no longer interested in being intimate, why she has no desire to spend time with him that when she's heard him criticize her body. Do you, do you not get that, that that criticism 
is such a poison to not just the marriage relationship. Criticism of the tongue is a poison to churches, families, schools. That tongue is a deathly thing. Just read James 3 over and over if you have any doubts about that. You think family, they're stuck with me. It doesn't matter how I speak to my siblings. It doesn't matter how I speak to my dad or my mom. I'll be a better person when I get married. I'll be a better person when I leave home. No, you're forming habits with your tongue. That's just one practical example. There's other ways you can learn to forgive. Forgiveness is a huge thing in marriage. You're gonna have to forgive things frequently in marriage, more so in marriage. I was with seven brothers. I had developed a thick skin where teasing and physical pain and things was involved. But when I fell in love with my wife and entered the relationship, I couldn't believe how overly sensitive I was to even a look from her or a comment. And I thought, I'm supposed to be tough. Why can I take this kind of criticism from my brothers and just let it roll off? But I'm so hurt by things Heidi, maybe she didn't even mean them. And I realized that's because for intimacy and marriage to happen, you have to completely lower your guards. You're, and the more your guard is up, the less safe you feel around the person, the, the more intimacy, emotional intimacy, is impossible. So what I'm saying is marriage is going to be full of hurts. And the best marriages are equally going to be full of hurts because your guards are down and you're going to continue to be hurt by little tiny things and you're going to have to learn to forgive. And forgiveness is not just something you muster up the strength to do. Forgiveness is found by meditating on the cross and having God empower you, understanding God's forgiveness to you. Everything I say here tonight, I want to make so clear. I'm not just giving you more rules. I'm giving you a picture of where God wants to take you. But God needs to take you to this place. You need to be empowered to do this by spending time in the Word. You need to be empowered to do this by being so overwhelmed with God's love for you. Because God's love for us is what empowers us to love others the way we can. And if we are not basking in God's love for us, you will not have the strength. No matter how many times you hear these messages, you may go, oh, that's great advice. That's a great illustration. That's a great analogy. That is not enough to produce spiritual life in you. Spiritual life comes from the Holy Spirit in you. Romans 8 is so clear. It's only by the Spirit that you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. To be carnally minded is death. To be carnally minded is to just be trying to do this on your own strength. Just buying self-help books, getting inspired. I can probably inspire you to go be kind to your family as you leave this door. But only God's power, when you actually see your fallen family and you actually experience a hurt, only God's Spirit can do that. C.S. Lewis said, everybody universally thinks that forgiveness is a great idea. <laughs> until it's required of them to forgive someone. Then it's hard. So, keep taking this back to the gospel. Keep taking this back to the power of God. And every time you fail in applying one of these truths to your life, don't spiral into self-despair. Just say, thank you, Lord, for this reminder of how much I needed the cross. Thank you for your love. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is available to make this real in me. Empower me 
So that's the marriage training grounds. The next is the A. All you need is God. God said it is not good for man to be alone. But there's a lot of people who live their lives single till the day they die. They are not in any way inferior or missing out than the married person. Because God is so, especially since the cross, God can be so satisfying. God can completely fill you up. And I think the best preparation, if you guys have a desire to become good spouse material, the best thing you can do is to become so satisfied with God that you are content in your singleness. I am not giving you a formula. Sometimes you hear it. People try to become content with singleness because they've heard so many testimonies that as soon as they were content with singleness, God said, now you're ready for marriage. That's not how it works. And that's not the goal of this. The goal of this is not to twist God's arm. The goal of this is to become satisfied with God. But the reality is there's times in marriage where your spouse is not going to be able to love you back the way you need. I encourage you guys to read The Four Loves, or at least read some cliff notes on it. It's by C.S. Lewis. The Four Loves were brotherly love, romantic love, kind of friendship, and agape. C.S. Lewis said that each one of these loves, if God is not the center If God is not your primary love, these loves become something that destroys you. For example, friendship. If you start looking to your friend to provide things that only God can provide you, your friendship has become an idol and it's going to become a source of misery. The parental love. If parents love their kids so much that they can't let go of them, if if parents have made an idol of their kids, Well, when their kid rebels, that parent is completely devastated because this this parent was looking to this relationship to define who they were, and they feel like a failure. No matter what you love, if God is not your primary love, that love is an idol, and it will disappoint you and be a source of misery and heartbreak. No matter what it is, it's oft, our idols are often really good things that God wants us to enjoy. But they become idols because we are not primarily worshiping God and being satisfied by God. God is so satisfying. How do you enjoy God? God has given us several ways. And this is where it starts by gaining a right knowledge of God through his word. And this is not reading to check something off your checklist so that God sees you as a good person. We have an amazing ability to really doubt the gospel and doubt God's love for us and turn things like Bible reading and prayer and church attendance into things we do so that God will look kindly on us. 
That is not the purpose of these things. God, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, God sees you as perfect. And He cannot love you more and He cannot love you less. He's not disappointed in you. These things are not to earn God's approval. You do these things to gain a greater knowledge of God, to grow in the knowledge of God. Read your Bible. You will find it such, so full of life. But don't just set certain... Goals are valuable. But read for intimacy. Read for knowledge of God. Not just insight. Ask God, how does this show me something about Christ? How does this show me something about your love? Read prayerfully. Bible reading is so important. If God is far from you, I just go spend more time in the Word, in a quiet place, and give it time. And don't just read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Personalize it. When you read a verse, this is a great... Memorize James, for example, and every time there's a command or something about God, turn it into God's words to you. Don't paraphrase it too much, but just in the sense that you make this, this is God speaking His words to you. And that's exactly what the Bible is. So Bible reading is the first thing. You can really enjoy God through that way. Another thing is prayer. We are utterly dependent on God. And the proof of how much we believe this, of how dependent we are on God, is found in how much time we spend in prayer. Every time I tell this to a group, I am so convicted by that, I can hardly finish my sentence. <laughs> because I want to spend time in prayer, but there are so many different ways and distractions today that God keeps me from really entering into prayer with Him, into communion with Him. And prayer needs to be informed by the Bible, where we are speaking God's words where he, we are listening to God by letting God speak to us in the way He has ordained, in the way He has chosen. Anytime you only have one-sided conversation, it's going to be empty. It's not going to be fulfilling. Spend time in prayer. Another thing is worship. Music is such a gift. It says in Psalms that God inhabits the praises of His people. There is something about music that God created, that evolutionary theory has no explanation for why music has the transcendent power that it does. There's no biological evolutionary advantage to music. Music is God's gift to us. Music soothes the emotion. Music arrests the mind. Music is powerful. Now, if this power of music is being given over to godless, hate-filled rappers, you're going to experience a lot of anger and pain and distance from God. Or if this is just being given over to a country singer who really does not understand what makes for love, but you are letting his message infiltrate your daily thoughts because you love the sound of the music, you love the emotions that it evokes, it's going to drag you down, it's going to deceive you. Music is powerful. But make sure that when this, the music you're listening to that is arresting you, make sure it's pointing you to truth about God. I encourage you, find a worship band that you love, where the music really fits your body's chemistry, where you enjoy it, where it makes you dance. Listen to it. Let it direct your mind back to God. Nature is another powerful way to experience God. 
If you are stuck in your basement, your times of doubt are going to be so much greater because God is so hidden from you. But if you step out in nature and examine the little tiny flies and just marvel for a minute at the complex circuitry and engines and a pain that God fit into something you can barely see, or you see the spiritual life force I don't mean that in a pantheistic way. I'm talking about life is mysterious and it's from God. And when you step out in nature, God becomes so abundant, His wisdom and His creation. Get out in an area where you can see a big sky or climb a mountain where you can see for a long way. Get somewhere that where you feel tiny. Because the smaller you feel, the smaller your problems become. And the bigger you see God, the bigger you see, the more you can see how able He is to fix these problems. And the final thing is gratefulness. Paul's indictment of humanity in Romans 1, they did not glorify God, neither were they thankful. And he gave them over to a darkened mind. And they worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We have an amazing ability to keep producing a false view of reality. And when we don't Thank God. Gratitude's the opener of the eyes. When we start saying thank you, God, we start noticing our abundant gifts. I was so convicted by a video I saw on Facebook of this. I don't know if it was fake. It doesn't matter. It was a great illustration. But this man had spent $60,000. He'd sent his wife on a two-week vacation. He'd spent $60,000 remodeling the kitchen to exactly the way he thought she would like. Two new stoves, ice maker, brand new cupboards. His friends are all waiting around, wondering what's her response going to be. This is an amazingly lavish act of generosity from a husband. She comes in and she goes, That color? Seriously? Why'd you pick that color? You couldn't even replace a stupid light bulb? She looks around with disgust. I asked for something nice. And she turns around walks out of the room. I don't know if that was fake, but what I do know is that the way we treat God is far worse. God gives us this amazing gift of a healthy body that is so far beyond the gift of what that man gave his wife. What do we do when we look in the mirror? Seriously, God, that knows. This body type That's it. I hate this body. How do you think your creator feels when he lavishes this gift on you? That's just one of, that's just the start of a series full of gifts that his kindness is bestowing on you. He gives you the experience to not just get nutrition from your breakfast, but to find, have each bite filled with pleasure, to be reminded of what a gift food is. And oh, oatmeal again, and you, that's the only thought you give to it. This is just a cycle of how we treat God. And then at the end of the day, we go, Where are you, God? I can't believe in a good God. Is this God's fault? It's our ungrateful spirit. Gratefulness is so important in enjoying God and experiencing God. The N, gotta quickly wrap this up. 
non-romantic relationships. Guys and girls, it's so important that you develop healthy non-romantic relationships. And remember, I talked about this this morning. Our culture is so sex-obsessed that we make an idol of how, what our value on the sex scale is. But it's such an empty lie. So we do everything we can to be made sexually attractive. This affects us on our subconscious level. We want to smell good, we look good. We really want other people of the opposite gender to find us attractive, even if we don't want a serious relationship with them. We at least wish that other person wished they could have a serious relationship with us. If that was not too convoluted of a sentence. The point is that we put our identity in that, and that is such a poisonous thing. You guys, your identity needs to be protector. You need to protect the girls around you. Don't, there's an image of a movie star, rock star, Casanova, that captures guys' minds. They really wish that this is how girls could see them, because then they would be happy. They would actually be happy if they were heartbreakers. They would be happy if they knew that they were making every girl in the room miserable because they couldn't have him. That's how twisted a guy's mind is. Guys, that is not the picture of how you should see yourself. See yourself as the protector. Because God's the avenger of all who defraud their brothers and sisters. Girls, quickly, what are some ways guys have defrauded you? I hear a lot about how girls complain about getting the modesty talk, which you're going to get in a little bit. <laughs> but they go, why is there nothing about the guys? They get to go post pictures of themselves. They get to run around in skimpy clothing. No one talks about that. Some girls find that really defrauding. Respect that. Girls, I don't know if you can be honest, some girls find a very personal compliment about their outfit, defrauding, something that stirs up desire, stirs up for the rest of the church service, or the midday, they struggle. Does this guy, did this guy like me? Did he like something more? Guys, as much as you want to be a distraction to the girls in your life, that is not showing them agape love. You're going to have to find your identity in being so loved by God so that you do not need girls to find you attractive. Because if you need to find girls to find you attractive, you're going to become a defrauding person. I encourage you, in, if you have non-romantic relationships, when we have more time, find a sister, find someone who tells you honestly what girls find defrauding. And don't manipulate that. Don't find that, oh, that's good to know. I can't wait to go exploit this. That's not why I'm encouraging you to find this. Do it to avoid it. To honestly treat the girls with, to cherish them as sisters. To want them to have freedom. That's what I want for you guys, is to want the girls in your life to have freedom. To fall in love with Jesus, to not fall in love with you. So that when they're around you for the day, they're not more in love with you, they're more in love with Jesus. That should be your goal. Okay, now brace yourself, girls. 
Modesty is a hot topic, and it has become such a hated topic. Um, I can't believe how many articles popping up redefining what God has to say about modesty, saying modesty is not an issue. Girls, there's, the logic is that guys are going to lust at you no matter what you wear, so dress in whatever makes you feel comfortable. The, the point here, I'm not... What I'm appealing to is that you dress according to the standard of Philippians 2, 3 and 4, where you don't dress for selfish ambition, but you put the needs of others ahead of you. Girls, guys made, God made guys to be visually stimulated and attracted. Now, guys and girls, this is not a one gender thing. Guys and girls have an arousal switch. Trust me, I am so grateful that God gave us an arousal switch. Please, I know this is tempting to just laugh at this. But here's why. Did it fall off? Did this, did the battery run dead? Did I go over time? Maybe that's Brian's hint to... Okay, I'll just speak louder. <laughs> It's an amazing gift to us to enjoy sexual arousal. It's holy, it, the world will mock this, but then secretly abuse it. It's an amazing gift to enjoy that. It's such a gift in marriage. But, if we didn't have the arousal switch where we couldn't shut it off, that would be a life of misery. Of, of misery. It'd be like a stallion constantly brain and never satisfied. Now, if we never could turn the arousal switch on, that would also be a dry, colorless life. So God gave us the switch. What turns on that switch is different for guys and girls, and it's different for different guys, it's different for different girls. What Paul says in Do Not Defraud is do everything you can to not turn on that switch of your brother and sister in Christ. Because when that switch is on, you've intensified their sexual struggle to stay pure. Girls, it doesn't happen all the time. But when guys see a body type that, or exposed to too much skin, a fire can be lit. Where even when they are trying to stay pure, even when they don't deliberately look, a raging fire can happen where they are so distracted, where they are trying hard to focus on God, but now for the rest of the service, the worthy guy is trying to guard his eyes and saying, I can't look over there. I can't look over there. I wish I could just forget about what's over there. I can't forget about what's over there. And it's such a distraction. He wants to love you. He doesn't want to see you as body parts, but it's very distracting to him. Girls, if you want to find out what type of dress is defrauding, don't look at magazines. Don't ask your girlfriend. Ask a brother, ask a dad, ask a, a trusted person. Because what, what I just asked the guys is to ask a girl. Don't just ask another guy what's defrauding, what turns that switch on. Get a female's perspective. And it's important, girls, that you get a guy's perspective about what's to dress. I'll say one thing, a lot of girls don't realize that when they stand in front of the mirror, in that position, everything they're wearing is fine. But what's a major eye trap for guys is certain types of clothing that suddenly becomes very revealing when you're in a different position.
And that ends up being more of a distraction because now the guy's not just looking at you, he's waiting to see if you're going to enter that position. Part of me is embarrassed to admit this is what guys are like, but this is how God made us to be. And it's a gift in marriage. But to wrap this up tonight, guys, I want to give you the modesty talk for guys. And I'm not just talking about why you need to keep your shirt on, or wear longer shorts, or less shirt, less, or shirts that are less tight. I want you to realize that you, listen to me guys, please. I want each one of you to realize your moral freedom does not depend on what the girls around you are wearing. If you think that your purity is dependent upon the girls around you staying modest, you have bought a poisonous lie. Because everywhere you go in this world, you're going to find either pictures in your head from a billboard or from a movie or from... Your fight for purity is so much bigger than what the girls around you are wearing. Here's why I want you and why God commands you to guard your eyes. First reason is that you will become sexually attracted to what you visually enjoy. When you are in an arousal state and you are looking at a shape of a female, it's imprinting on your mind, this is your type. Now if you are looking at unrealistic pornography, you have just devastated your future wife. Because what she wants above all is to know she is, you find her beautiful, that you find that you need her. What you want is to be able to look at your wife and say, honey, the way you look is everything I want right now. But if you have trained your eyes, trained your computer to only be satisfied by fake pornography, no real woman will be able to satisfy you. The amazing thing is, is that God has made it so that our sex drive is adaptable. You know, if you look at the, through history, the standard of what men have found attractive has changed throughout the centuries. They used to find incredibly overweight, not that they were overweight, they were the perfect weight for that century. Incredibly voluptuous women, attractive. That's what guys got turned on by. And that, now it's, for some guys, no curves, stick thin, they look like a little girl, it's disturbing, that that's what guys find sexually attractive. Here's why this is a gift in marriage. If you are starving yourself from any other sexual stimuli, you are only letting yourself get turned on by your wife. As your wife changes shapes, your body will keep in your mind, your brain software will keep adjusting to her changing shape and you will always be satisfied and she will feel so safe. Another reason to guard your eyes is that if you are letting culture define what's attractive to you, you are also devastating the women in your life because our culture has it in for real life women. We met a girl who was a Victoria's Secret model before she was a Christian she was about 5'10", one of the skinniest women I had ever met. And she said that she was a few pounds less than she weighed when we met her. And she said the people in the industry called her a fat pig. And that she needed to lose weight if she wanted to keep her job. That is so cruel 
to real life women that the only way you can be sexually attracted is if you've starved yourself so that you have to be unhappy and unsatisfied and miserable the whole time just so guys can lust after you girls I encourage you I think the strongest reason for modesty for you is not just to help out your brothers and sisters in Christ to be less of a distraction to them it's to save your most precious gift or one of your most precious gifts to give to the guy who is really going to care for you when you reveal your body which is such a gift it's it's guys see it as the most beautiful gift most beautiful thing in creation when you give make your body available to anybody you have cheapened yourself because that person can get all the pleasure, all the arousal, all the information he needs for whatever wicked, sensual thing he wants to do later. And he's going to violate you in his mind. Is that the guy you want to give your precious gift to? Or do you want to save your gift for the man who has saving his eyes for you? For the guy who's always going to be satisfied by your fluctuating body shapes? The guy who is willing, the guy who deserves your body is the guy who is paying your bills, who is feeding you, who is rubbing your back while you're throwing up for morning sickness, who is showing you selfless love, who doesn't just care about your measurements, but cares about your dreams, your desires, your hurts, your emotional state. That's the guy who deserves your beauty. Not the guy who is just looking for whatever piece of meat he wants to. I gotta really wrap this up again. But I really encourage you guys, sexual purity is so important. It's so freeing, you can't do it on your strength. But I just pray that you guys will form a team. And as you go to your youth groups, you'll form a team where your desire is not selfishly motivated to enjoy whatever sexual thrills you can in the moment, but so that you can form a band of brothers, a community that fights for the next generation, that fights for sexual purity, so that you can enjoy this gift and not be destroyed by this gift. Thank you. You guys were very attentive in the church tonight. Thank you.